Dante Spinotti is both a member of the ASC, the American Society of Cinematographers, and the AIC, the Association of Italian Cinematographers. In a recent conversation from Los Angeles, he spoke to us about his distinguished career as a cinematographer. He recalled how Dino De Laurentiis helped start his career in the U.S. on Michael Mann's 1986 film Manhunter. Later in the discussion, he shared many of on-set stories working with Mann on four additional films, including Last of the Mohicans, Heat, The Insider, and Public Enemies. He also talked about shooting L.A. Confidential for Curtis Hansen. Dante also offered his views on shooting film versus digital Globe Screen Podcast would like to thank Mirtha Skouris Agency for arranging this episode. We are so honored to have acclaimed cinematographer Dante Spinotti on the Globe Screen Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. It's fantastic. Today is finally a sunny day in Los Angeles after weeks and weeks of rain, which, however, was beautiful because one of the main issues here was dryness, and as we all know. And for many years, dryness that provoked a shortage of water and, and, and fires all over the place. Yeah, so I know there's some serious droughts there. Yeah, yeah I'm based today in New York. Kind of day, so. Here in New York, the weather has been very erratic. <laughs> it gets yeah, in Italy, for instance, in Italy, where, in Italy, also where I come from, it's a very rainy area in the Alps. It's been, it is very dry. So it's, uh, the big rivers are low threatening agriculture so it's all a complicated issue around the world isn't it oh very yeah yeah so you guys want to talk about movies absolutely you actually worked on a number of films with dino de Laurentiis. is that right that did he help you the acclaimed producer did he help get your career going oh, in the yeah, u.s yeah, as a yeah. I just actually finished the movie. He just finished the movie a week ago. And it was a very good movie because it had De Niro playing two, two gangsters. One is Vito Genovese, the other one is Frank Costello. The movie is 1957, but it also refers to earlier, to an earlier period when these kids were growing up together. It's about this, this, this double character. And what was extremely interesting is, in fact, Nero, that I just came back and the movie was very interesting because of, especially because the Nero's really acting one day, one character, and another day, another character. And yeah. it took two hours for him every morning to put the prosthetics on and the makeup and, and form himself into these two different characters. That's Mafia fascinating. Character. Are there scenes where the character is interacting with the other character? There are, yes. There are three scenes which they interact at the same table. So we had to use one of those complicated computer operated cranes that would, uh, it would establish one move with one of the actors. It would be repeated exactly when the same actor in a different, the next day he was coming in the scene dressed and made up differently. For sure. And was that sort of a challenge as far as lighting continuity? Not really. No, no. It wasn't a challenge as far as lighting. It's uh, you light the whole scene and you're prepared for both guys. And then you, once you've done the first pass with the first actor the first day, you can't touch anything because everything has to stay exactly the same. That makes sense. So, so the scene can play as if it's played at the same time, at the same moment at the same time. 
so go- yeah yeah that sounds exciting and what's the name of that film so we look out for it the name of that film was the wise guys but i think it has been changed into the alto nights the alto club was a mafia club in new york okay i'll look out for it for sure so g- going back to earlier in your career you had collaborated with Michael Mann on a number of films, including Manhunter. What role did Dino De Laurentiis play in that whole project? Dino De Laurentiis was key for me because because I decided to become a freelance at some point. I was working for Italian. I was a staff cinema cameraman on Italian television. And I decided to become a freelance because I wanted to go into something a little more challenging wanted to go into movie making. So I left the Italian television ride and I worked for two, three years in the, as a freelance in Rome. My first movie book was a director called Sergio Citti. He was a, an assistant of Pierpaolo Pasolini. Anyway, that was yeah. my first film in Rome. And after a couple of years, I was contacted by Dino De Laurentiis, who had a, a studio in North Carolina. And he was trying to hire his collaborators, not from Hollywood, not from mainstream American filmmaking. But since he was in North Carolina, which was a free-to-work state, he was trying to hire people, say, from the UK, you know, DPs and uh, production designers, and from Italy. Yeah, most of the time, we are both in Wilmington, North Carolina, working for Dinos, some Italian DPs or Billy Williams from UK, private people. Yeah. And, uh, Sometimes these guys were ending in, in jail, maybe at the end of the week, because uh, the British sometimes for maybe ex- some extra alcohol consumption. The Italians maybe for speeding too much with cars on the roads. Yeah. But we got along great. And, and that was the great part of this initiative by Dino that he had all this, uh, these people coming from different parts of the world, from Australia to 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 every part of America from was a key grip was coming from Texas. And when I did the first movie with Michael Mann, it was Manhunter. I brought in. I love that movie. Manhunter. Yeah. It's so good. And obviously it was the introduction to Hannibal Lecter character before silence of the lambs. There was Manhunter and yeah, it was fantastic. So what was your, and I'm familiar. I love Michael Mann and I've heard him do a number of talks in general and He's such a thorough, detail-oriented filmmaker, and it's really impressive the sort of level of detail that he even thinks about each character, and he writes, I know he writes backstories for each character. What was your first impression of working with Michael Mann? Yeah, first of all, it was a huge jump because coming from a few, very few years of freelancing in Italy, way of making movies, and encountering Michael, also the crew I had was a very complicated crew because it was... Half of it was Italian, and they couldn't speak English, so you can imagine it was a kind of a Tower of Babel. Yeah. And of course, Michael has his own way of controlling the movies. He's very accurate, and he likes to control what he does. In fact, you can work nicely with Michael if you like and understand what he does, because if you are in disagreement, you probably better go. You probably better go work somewhere else. Was uh, there ever... I wanted to ask you about that, because sometimes... But it was, but it was an amazing encounter, yeah. because uh, all of a sudden you, you, you find yourself in an entirely different working environment, which is the U.S., which has... Uh, Longer uh, hours, I can imagine. The hours was extremely long, also because being a non-union picture in very long hours, sometimes I do remember getting into the stage 
coming back at night into the stage and find an entirely new crew that was taking over, for instance, the Greek crew that was taking over the crew so we could keep shooting. Yeah, and of course, Michael has two things which are extremely interesting. First of all, is historically very prepared on the movie he does. If you think a movie like The Last of the Mohicans, it's obviously a, a beautiful love story, but at the same time, it has a very deep and profound search on all the historical reality. And I'm looking forward now to see how this new movie Ferrari is coming out because there was a movie a couple of years ago that was called, I think, Ford versus Ferrari, which yes. was spectacular in terms of action scenes and racing scenes and things like that. But it had nothing to do with the period and with the real Ferrari, with the real history of the time, which I do remember extremely well as I was a very passionate kid in those years. So that's what's great about Michael, is that he seriously does a research on movies he does. And it's, you're looking at something real. You're looking at something that can tell you something historically, can teach you something. Yeah. And where you mentioned Pasolini before, but it, I'm sure a lot of the Italian neorealist films were made a strong impression on you when you were growing up, would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I gotta tell you, I was never, I was never a big fan of going to see movies or a student. Or yes, I went to cinema the same back in the days. We saw a lot of movies, Italian, French, etc. But in fact, when I was asked, when the, 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 there was a little story about LA Confidential, I got a call from the director. He said, Dante, I do not want to do a movie that refers to film noir in New York. And I said, I don't even know what film noir is. I told, I, told, I told Curtis, I said, I don't know what film noir is. Which was, of course, not true because I actually translated in Italian for my colleagues in television the book, Painting with Light, which was written by John Alton, who was one of the founders cinematographers of film noir. But in fact, yes, my knowledge of the history of cinema was never very deep. That's never amazing. Yeah, because you became a master cinematographer. But I guess that was just through your own experiences. And I think I read somewhere that you were the photographer in your town soccer team, like your the town football team. Is that right? Yeah, I actually started, my passion for photography started very early. I was like a kid like a 12 years old kid, and I would process my negative and under the bed in my bedroom, closing the windows to try to make it dark. And yes, I did the photos. My early photos were the photos of the local soccer team playing games, and my photos went into the, to the windows of the main, the, the bars in the town, and my name on the bottom, followed by Dante Spinotti, my early success. So yes, when I couldn't go on studying Greek and Latin at the classic school in Milano, my parents, of course, hands of their hands. What do we do with this kid? Fortunately, I had in Kenya an uncle of mine who was a cameraman, cinematographer, director. So I became his guest for one year when I was probably 18. Left school, and that's how I started. And that's how I started. Did you find that going somewhere new in, in some places visually different as Kenya, did that give you the kind of experience of trying to look at things from fresh eyes and a fresh perspective? Do you think that was well, formative for you? It wasn't for you? about that. It was about two different things. It was, first of all, 
maturing as a kid, growing older, learning how to lead. I was on my own at that point. So assumption of responsibility was an important part of it. The other thing was that there were not many kids who could speak English in those days. And, and I had the occasion to learn English. So one year later, when I came back to Italy, and a number of occasions because of that, because I had this privilege of knowing speaking English correctly, so I could go to British DPs coming down to do work in Italy and stuff like that. It was a, a kind of a speedy learning process. In Kenya, I started immediately, I was given a camera very early, three months into the time I was there. I was asked to go to Marala to film the release of Jomo Kenyatta for United Press International, who then became the president of Kenya. And I was using 35 millimeter cameras, pushing, trying to get the shots with many reporters being present. And uh, United Press said, it's a little repetitive, but it's okay. We will pay for the coverage. So that was my first success. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So jumping forward to the last of the Mohicans, I guess that was your second film with Michael Mann. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And um, there's the closing sequence. That's the thrilling chase through the frontier mountains of New York state where Russell Means's character chases the war party and kills their leader, Magua, the character yeah. played by Wes Studi. Is that right? And yes. how, how much of this sequence was planned in pre-production versus what you shot on location? And was it all completed in one shooting day? No, I mean, it was completely a number of shooting days, including a second, second unit that kept shooting the guys running up the hills. He was one of Michael's main collaborators. But the interesting thing is that Magua, a couple of weeks before we shot the scene, hurt his knee. And then it was, that was something that kind of saved the movie because it added with insurance a couple of extra weeks in which the producer and Michael Mann made a plan and we were allowed and we were able to shoot a number of smaller shots and scenes that were basic, extremely important for the movie. So when Magua then came back, in fact, if you notice, in some of those shots, you can see Magua limping slightly <laughs> when he's encountering the son of the last of the Mohicans, the son of the son of Russell Means, and he had the famous fight knife fight on the ledge. I'm sure a lot of people thought that was just him trying to be in character. <laughs> yeah, there's this, there's actually a shot in which you see him slightly limping. And, uh, but we could complete the movie and the finale is obviously extraordinary. It's a classic Michael Mann finale. There's a lot of energy. And, and uh, yeah, there's that shot in which the two are on the edge of the cliff, you know, and you see the mountains on the other side. And the two Mago and Russell Mees are confronting each other. And I remember shooting that myself and it's like it's suspended. Life is suspended in that very moment. And was that the sort of thing that Michael Mann said, I want to go handheld for this? Or do you ever chime in with those sort of recommendations? During that movie, I was actually operating the camera quite a bit, quite a lot. In, in that film, because I came in a little later on that movie. I didn't start. I was supposed to do that movie, but the movie kept being delayed. And I took another film, kept being delayed, so I took another film in Hollywood, which was called Beaches. With oh, Bette with Bette Midler. Gary but Marshall. Gary Marshall directed that, right? Yeah, Gary Marshall, yes. Which allowed me to enter officially Hollywood. You see what I mean? 
So when I feel that Michael called me desperately, he said, I'm not getting along basically with the DP he had between. Would you mind coming up and replacing him? And of course I said yes, because, because I was, it's one of those things that you ask yourself later. Did I make a mistake or not by choosing? So I picked up the movie. I started the movie. They flew me in with the Concorde back in those days. Yeah. And, and I landed on a Friday and started shooting it on the next day, maybe the night scene at the fort. And, and so, yes, it was four weeks into the film. And, and it was the film of my dreams, really, because the film has nature, has action, has, uh, has the period. We lit a lot. We started lighting a lot with real torches, not using any lighting inside the forest, but just natural lighting. Uh, I switched to a different film star. They were shooting with Agfa, and I suggested, Michael, let's go to Kodak, because we can push the film. And when the light goes down in the forest, we can still shoot. In those days, it's not like now. We have the... Sony Venice too, that you can push to 6,000 ASA. In those days, pushing the film was a, was a big careful deal. And you could do that with Kodak. And so we shot most of the, I started shooting all the forest action without any lighting, except for maybe a little bit of a beauty lighting on the faces of the, of the girls, of the women. But one of the mistakes that my predecessor did it was the fact that we was lighting these big scenes, adding shafts of, of, of sunlight across the, the field and lighting the actors. And when the light was going down, these shafts of light were very evident, very visible, making the thing not so realistic for me, not so interesting. That's why I changed to natural lighting the moment I started shooting in the yeah. forest. For the movie, also because what happened at some point that Michael maybe changed his plan and saying, I don't want to shoot in this direction, why don't we shoot in this direction? And at that point, if you have lights in the forest, you got to move those lights. And moving lights in the forest is not the easiest of things because I imagine in those days were even tougher because you need more wattage and bigger generators versus. Yeah. Some lights that exist now, some LEDs and things like that. Yeah, yeah in a way, yes. So I want to discuss heat. Which I don't have to tell you that a lot of us filmmakers consider that a cinematic masterpiece. And a lot of people in general. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> I'd say it's, it's definitely, I consider that the best movie I've worked on, definitely. And it's most likely one of the finest movies that Michael has done. And it's, it is a masterpiece. I think it's, it's one of the finest film. movies ever made, honestly, because it's such an ambitious film. And it's just incredible. I was watching it again last night, just in. Yeah, and it, it, the movie keeps going. We did a 4K version, a re, a re, we re, a recolored version. This was probably four or five years ago. I don't remember exactly. We recolored the whole version. Michael spent two months with Stefan Sonnenfeld, the company tree. I spent a couple of weeks because I didn't have two months available. And then we had a big meeting at the academy that was led by Chris Nolan who, as we know, the bigger, everybody was there, Pacino, De Niro, Michael Mann. And we were also invited on the stage after a while. And to provoke Chris Nolan, I said, basically, this was my plan. I said, to me, the movie is now a better movie because it went through a digital pass. 
And so we could correct and, uh, and recover information in the shadows and change colors that were not working properly. When you do a movie for such a long time, in so many locations, you're bound not to have everything that you can control. And of course, no, no one turns to me saying, I beg your pardon. <laughs> he was really annoyed by the fact. Oh, really? I was thinking a digital pass would have made it feel better. <laughs> Such a film, I, he's a film purist. I know that. Yeah, he's a film purist. Yeah. Indeed. Besides and being a great director, of course. A great director. And I know that Heat was a major inspiration to Christopher Nolan. And you could even see it in The Dark Knight, the opening of that film. Yeah. Definitely had Heat vibes for sure. Yes. Heat is a movie that makes me very proud. There's no doubt about it. Did you guys use a lot of gels on the windows? I noticed that sometimes there would be blue-looking light that looked really cool. Yeah, one of we started actually when we started shooting with Michael. Michael introduced me to the color green for Manhunter. He said, "No, the color green is really a color, especially if you use it with black. It's a color which is very upsetting. It's very emotionally strong. In fact, the whole finale of Manhunter, you see, there are these green gels." A lot of that dawn is lit with green light. And uh, instead, I introduced Michael to the color blue, which is probably way more romantic. In fact, the whole romantic part of Manhunter has this blue color. But we used again on heat because when, when De Niro goes back into his house, when he looks at the, puts down his gun on the glass table and then leans against the, he leans against the window and he looks out at the ocean. Everything is just in blue which back in those days was extremely complicated because, because it was very, you had to do tests. It was very easy to make a mistake. If you were too dark, you would go into complete night. And if it was too bright, the night would look fake. So you had to expose exactly in that area. And I had three layers, when you have three or four layers of gels laid put on a window accurately, it's not that easy to make changes. Well, you pulled it off. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of Heat, Moby's iconic music plays over a dying Neil McCauley as Detective Hannah holds on in a kind of passing of the living to the dead. Was this closing scene all sh shot in one night? And how did you light it? I'm going to imagine that it wasn't shot in one night. I'm sure it was numerous well, nights. It was not. Actually, what happened there, talking about, I think, again, I think Pacino hurt himself. I don't remember exactly which scene. So we had to push back for a couple of weeks the actual scene of, uh, of the of the airport because if you remember, he's chasing Robert De Niro running like crazy across the across the, the airport. We shot the thing at night, obviously, when the planes were not, very few planes were landing. And I had something like, I don't remember, 20 Dino lights, all the big lights in town I think I had in that scene and I had them set on the side of this area where they chase each other you might remember there are some kind of low rather houses painted in white and red and and they chase each other until Al sees the shadow of the robber and comes out and shoots and kills him I had all these lights because we were shooting 360, so when uh, we would see a light, I would turn it off or fade it out and maybe fade in some other lights. And of course, all these big 21 
thousand watt lights with 21 bulbs in it were very narrow spots were protected on top and the sides so we couldn't hurt eventual planes landing when they were landing of course we would turn off the uh, lights it was a very complicated process i don't remember that's fascinating but uh, today they probably shot the whole scene without any light because there are in that area some existing lights that create some sort of very soft light in the air which are actually bad but we had to add lights because we were shooting anamorphic so michael likes the use of the zoom lenses so at times you need to be able to shoot at four five or five and six back in those days even though i was shooting the whole movie at 2000 asa the whole film interior night days was pushed processed because i didn't want to have jumps or changes in the feel of the film when we were going to when we were going to night or situations of the day getting dark in which i had to push the film anyway and so i definitely want to discuss the bank heist in the middle of the film the famous bank heist that that was incredible how long did that take to shoot i think that took four weekends to shoot we had the whole plan in the office i remember the whole map everything was staged exactly the way it was going to happen and it was actually nicknamed, I think it was nicknamed the Third World War when we were prepping it because of all this. Yeah, there's a lot involved. Difficulties. I think that, I think it was so realistic that the military, from what I've read, the, I think the military has used that scene as like a training video for certain things. I'm not sure about that, but it was referred to things that actually happened in, in kind of bank assaults here and there except obviously not in that dimension. And uh, yes, we filmed in more weekends because we had the area entirely blocked for us. The number of police was unbelievable. And, and uh, yeah, and I even had lights on the roofs to try to have some blast of lights in case that there were changes. We were shooting all day, so at some point the sun was down. We still need to match something. So I had these very powerful xenon lights on top of some of the buildings. How long was that shoot? for heat in general, how many months? I don't remember. I think it was maybe 85 days or something. 85 days? That makes yeah, sense. 85 yeah. working days. 85 working days. About five yeah. or six days every week. I would have thought even more, honestly. I thought you were going to say six months of working. You no, know, things happen like myself shooting in the valley in Los Angeles, which is across the on the other side of the hills. And as everybody was going to dinner at around 10 o'clock, I would pick up the car, fly to a freeway crossing that was uh, towards San Pedro, meaning 45 minutes drive away without traffic, and skip lunch and prepare the lighting for a scene that happened on the other side of the city, wow. you know, under the bridge of the freeway with another lighting crew. Wow. And they maybe prep two cars in which one car was prepped to be able to shoot one of the actors and one of the angles, and maybe Robert De Niro, and the other car was prepped to shoot instead. Amy Brenneman was his girlfriend from the other angle and the other side. So both were ready to go and lit so that the actors would just, and the camera already placed them there. So the actor would step down one of the cars, enter the other, would take off immediately with the second camera car. 
and this is to stay within the, and then dawn would come up. Dawn would come up, and of course I would try to increase the lighting to keep the Did you ever oh. sleep <laughs> during this production? Yes, we also slept at times, yes. The dawn history is very famous on the movie called like The Last of the Mohicans, because uh, we were shooting at night. And there was a dialogue between Magua and the French commander who was a French actor, you might remember it. Don't remember his name. Famous French director as well, actor director. He was playing the French commander who were in the middle of the forest. Patrick Chereau, is that right? Yeah, exactly. And we were shooting at night and, and we keep shooting and shooting and, 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 and I see that the, the light starts coming out and in the forest it was hard to detect until Michael screams and shouts at me and says, Dante, what is that 10K you lit up there in the forest? And I go and turn to Michael and say, Michael, it's not a 10K. That is the sun. <laughs> he was so involved in the shooting of the movie that he realized that the sun was coming up. The sun. That's hysterical. And right did you have to flag it out for if to maintain? Well, at some point, we had to stop shooting. <laughs> So actually, another thing that I've noticed about looking at your career, you've worked on such an eclectic amount of kinds of films, which I think is really cool, like films like Heat with Michael Mann, but also films like Beaches and the film Bandits for Barry Levinson and then X-Men. Yeah. What's your kind of philosophy about dealing with different directors? My main philosophy is that if a director is good, he has the right of directing the movie the way he likes to do. Help and assistance 100% or ask for your input and in, in creativity, also in placing the camera and telling the story. Some others, like Michael Mann, would know exactly what to do and have their own emotional plan of the whole picture. So that's, uh, that's one of the things. I also, when I talk to students, I often tell them, Listen, sometimes I can change 180 degrees the idea that the director has about shooting a scene. However, if I do that, I need to be absolutely sure that I have understood what's in the director's mind, what is in his mind, because, uh, because you have to do the movie that the director wants to do, otherwise we have no movie. What, what, all yeah. Was there ever a time where Michael Mann or any other specific director requested to do something that at first you didn't, you challenged it or just didn't understand it, but then saw that it was actually a good thing or vice versa? Yes, it can happen. There's always a, there's always a dialogue and a discussion going on, but don't forget that you also have, especially in these days in which Budgets are getting smaller, and you need to, like in this last movie, we should be very late. We had 41 days to shoot the movie, and not one extra hour. And we were very fast, I have to say, because also Barry shoots in a very quick, very fast way. He knows exactly what he wants, doesn't do, he does just the necessary amount of takes. But there's a lot of scouting that goes on, and you try to be as, as precise as you can in the scouting, because that will save time. And in these days, it's absolutely fundamental to save time. Sure. Yeah. That takes care of a number of, however, there's still a lot of discussion that go on. And, and at times, at times you got to learn how to protect your ideas.
and how to express your anger. <laughs> it's like we had a film, we had a scene in these last movies in which we would see one of the two, the Nero characters getting married in a big party. And then you cut to a mirror shot in which you see the party going on with one of the De Niro characters. And you land on the other character De Niro is playing, you know. And through some visual effect, because you see it in the mirror, the party in the mirror, and then you land on the on on the Nero playing the other character who makes a comment on the wedding. And 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 yes, I had a discussion with the director because I said we need to see the position of the actor so we can see them. And Mark, but you know, Dante, if you do that, they're gonna give their shoulders to the audience. I said, No, the audience is everywhere. But we gotta see the two actors, otherwise, why do the shot? So there are discussions that happen like that, and you need to learn what kind of character the director has because it's not good to to have a conflicting situation in which it's not worth working with someone with which you need to work so closely if you have a conflicting situation and you have discussions on how to do things. That makes sense. So, make sense. so in, in the 1999 movie, The Insider, Christopher Plummer and Al Pacino shared some long dialogue scenes. Do you recall Michael having to do many takes when shooting those scenes? Yes. Yes, definitely, yes. Michael is, was very well known for doing a good number of takes. I remember reaching 40 or something like that of Manhunter, but those were nights with, crazy nights with, with William Peterson, for instance, where Michael's idea was that at times in which if he could get the actor really tired, he would pull out the realism and the credibility that otherwise was difficult to obtain from an actor. Gotcha. Maybe keep acting. So that was one way to... But Michael was known for going for precision. The famous scene between Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. Amazing scene. In his interviews that take 11 was the take he mostly used for the scene. Sorry. Oh, all good. Yeah. So... In the entirely take eleven, but we shot I don't know probably fifteen. Fifteen full takes of the master, huh? Now, so in the insider, the scenes that take place at the CBS headquarters and the scene where Crow's character is giving depositions in the state of Mississippi were those shot on real locations. I tell you, I don't remember if the actual Mississippi scene with Russell Crow was real. Was the real court? But the street was the real street, and the location, the area was the real area. I don't remember exactly, it might have been. Actually, the one of the attorneys is the guy who flies the plane. There's a cut to him who's flying the plane at some point. He was one of the real attorneys of a, of a real trial. There's a number of search for real places, real locations, especially of Michael Mann's movies. Yeah, it sounds like if they weren't sp- each real, they were really close to it realistic yes maybe it could have been that it might have been the same room even for the trial the cbs for the cbs honestly i do not remember i do not remember it might have been a i don't know big building somewhere yes i think we found the net i think we were shooting 
in an empty big apartment downtown, probably in Century City here in LA. The movie was also shot in New York, the inside. But we found, a, yes, a big empty building, apartment in LA that was reconstructed as yeah. CBS office. And by the way, I don't blame you for not remembering after that was 25 years ago and you've, you have 80 films on your IMDb credit. So that's the shooting day. So it's, how could one keep track? We did shoot something in a real building in New York because there's actually a shop that you might remember, which I'll, who is he? Yes. Al Pacino in, that was uh, in uh, the insider, I think he's leaning against the window and uh, right behind him is the whole central park. Yeah, so that real New York apartment there. In 1997 and 2000, you collaborated with Curtis Hansen on L.A. Confidential and then Wonder Boys. For L.A. Confidential, could you tell us a little bit about how you approached the the collaboration between Janine Openwall to create the world of a period piece looking Los Angeles? Curtis Hansen was famous for deciding at the last moment taking his decision at the last moment. I think I got a call when I was in the Alps, Italian Alps. I was probably also, I just went by a pub, I was shooting a documentary on skiing. I was probably also a little drunk. And he said, hey, Dante, we have this movie I'd like to bring you up to. And uh, I said, who are you, the producer? I said, no, I'm the director. Oh, I said, I'm the best guy that can shoot the movie for you. I read the screenplay, of course. And the next week I was on a plane, three weeks away from beginning the movie. So the, the prep was extremely fast with Janine. She, they took me around on this few existing, still real period. I think the, the time was 1953, if I'm not wrong. That was the, the time in which LA Confidential happens. And so it was a kind of a very quick prep, looking at all these locations with Janine. And of course with Curtis. Curtis is a very meticulous director. He doesn't shoot a lot, but he's very careful, very on the detail. Does a lot of coverage, as we say, because there's a lot of cuts on every actor saying this and that line. And but it was very pleasant to collaborate with him. I think I think on the day confidential, I could really express myself in terms of uh, storytelling in terms of. Uh, and on these films, how collaborative was Curtis with you in terms of? the staging of the scenes and setting up sequences? Oh, totally, entirely, yes. We would, we would really decide all the shots together and, and, uh, and figure out the best way to to read and tell the scene. Amazing. Yes. And uh, it sound, you, you mentioned he didn't do as many takes. It seems like if he did a number of takes and he knew that he could not, print not that take. Not many tape. takes, but many, again, many setups. Many different shots. How many, just out of curiosity, how many setups do you think you were doing per day on the movie Heat? On the movie Heat? I don't know, say around 12, 15. That's a good amount. Michael often uses two or three cameras, so. Yeah. That's, in this movie I just finished, because of the technology, we were getting easily to 40, 60 setups a day. In the last movie I shot with Barry Levinson. But we also used often a very tiny little, one of the major steps, technological steps, which is coming up now, is, is Sony has just created a camera 
which has the same sensor of the Sony Venice 2, which is probably the best filming tool I use so far in my working life in my career. It's a tiny little photographic camera that can also shoot film. And the quality is very similar to the bigger camera. So that means they can grab the tiny little camera at any time, get the special shot on a special angle or on a piece of quick film that wasn't even planned. So actually I wanted to ask you speaking of digital cameras when you were shooting 2000s 2009's public enemies i know michael mann had already ex experimented quite extensively already with digital he was an er earlier proponent of that with the film collateral and miami vice did you bring any of these digital shooting working methodologies from those early earlier films to public enemies yes indeed i also embraced uh, digital technology immediately. When the first movie I shot was actually a, a movie directed by Tony Hopkins. It was called The Slipstream. And I think Michael Mann had already shot the film. I don't know if it was Collateral, his first movie. I, I'm sure. I know Collateral came out in 2006. Yeah. I don't know if that was his first digital film or not. It's, it, it, or 2004, it, it, rather. I'm sorry, 2004. I was mistaken. 2004, yeah. I love digital too. I thought the early cameras were a little difficult. Anyway, we did some tests before we started Collateral. No, sorry, before we started Public Enemies in Chicago. We did some tests in LA and we compared film to the Sony F23. And we decided, I'm not sure we did the right choice, to be honest, to this day. But we decided to go with Sony F23. <clears throat> Obviously, shooting with the digital cameras is way faster and, and especially in these days where technology is so good it, it takes you there it takes you where you want to be in, in a much quicker way and the quality is the same if not better than using film these days so absolutely why not and it's an entire it's an entire change historically this digital affair because if you think about any other form of art like a writer a writer is writing and then goes back, reads his, what is written and it can change. Or a painter can do the same thing. He paints a day and then he comes back. A musician, <clears throat> the same thing. Not so in movies. Once you've shot something in movies, you're done. There's no coming back. Yes, you can, in theory, go back and reshoot, but very few people do it. Right. And so the fact that you can see what you're doing, whether it is visually or directing wise is a major step forward because you know now this form of art is if you can call it art of course sometimes you can it can be similar to other forms of art that we know yeah film what's which is what's interesting about film compared to other works of art is i i actually heard i read in an interview where stanley kubrick once said that film is more like music than any other art form. And I think he's saying that really because it's an art form that you experience over time. It's temporal versus just looking at a painting for a moment or even longer. Film it has to be experienced over a specified amount of time. Yes, I also find interesting what the Italian semiologist and writer who wrote The Name of the Rose, Umberto Eco said, you cannot describe or call anything with the word 
art unless the elements of communication in that piece of work have made a step forward. In other words, anybody who imitates a painting by the Mona Lisa, by Leonardo, whatever you want, makes an imitation. That's not art. It's only art if you make a step forward in the way you communicate, which I think is a very interesting concept. That is a really interesting concept. On that note, are there any are there any other cinematographers that you pay attention to that you follow along with their work? Definitely, yes, here in the air. Definitely, why not? Back in the days, I think we had three major masters. Like uh, back in the days, I'm saying we had the God who witness. We had sure the Godfather. He was the Prince of Darkness. We had the Swedish guy uh, Sven Nyqvist. I thought because of his simplicity. And of course, the great Italian, Vittorio Storaro. Vittorio Storaro, sure. Invented a new way back in those days. Today, because of the technology, maybe it's storytelling. You can change the technology, but storytelling is still a very tough thing to deal with. And you gotta, that's coming not from technology, that's coming from the human brain. And I liked a lot, for instance, The Joker. I think it was photographed by. I can't remember his name now, but this moment, beautiful, um, the, the first movie. Well, Larry Sure. Larry Sure, yes, I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to see West Front, the new West Front, all new, all the Western Front. Oh, that was incredible. That's a masterpiece. I highly recommend it. I started watching it the other night just to throw something on, and it was just, I was hooked, and it's really yeah. beautifully shot. I will see one of these next days. What else? I got another movie I want to go look. It's probably the Darius Conji movie, Bardo, I think it's called. So, you know, I see movies that are only movies that I think have a very specific interest. Yeah. Where there's something special to look at. I can't tell you how much I appreciate. I guess one more question before. Is there, what sort of advice would you give to cinematographers, younger DPs that are really starting out in this field? Tough question. Probably be prepared to hold on. <laughs> <laughs> That's good advice. Yeah, because going on a movie, going through a movie is kind of tough, and especially for somebody who starts, for a younger. It's tough because you are subject to frustrations, difficulties, and, and you got to keep fighting. You can't give up. For and sure. if you do that, then you overcome difficult moments. And then maybe before later, you get to something. No, but that's a good point because I could say from my own experience as a filmmaker, it's, you have to learn over time to keep your cool in high pressure situations because in the beginning, that's the hardest because you know how it is being on set could be such a pressure cooker. Yeah. Yeah, it is. You got pressure, you got actors, you got to make it look good. <clears throat> I had to... You have to be very accurate. Uh, For instance, ladies, that takes time. So you got to prepare to be prepared to defend your time, gain your time. One thing I also noticed about your work that I think is striking is you have such a unique and interesting way of shooting close-ups. Like, for example, when I was watching L.A. Confidential and the introduction to Russell Crowe's character, and I think that was really his first real introduction into American films. I think he had done other things, but that was like his first major part in an American movie. I shot his first three movies. Oh, yeah? His first three American movies. 
by photograph. We wrestle, so we know each other quite well. Yeah. But yeah, I think I just love that establishing shot where you see him in the car and it's the introduction to his character. And I, I don't know, I think you, you're really strong with that amongst many other things, but if you have time, I can tell you another short story. Oh, sure. Okay. So we were shooting a dialogue between uh, the leading lady. I've been out. What's her name? What's her name? Fantastic. Oh, in LA confidential. Was it Kim Basinger? Kim Basinger. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't do any test with Kim Basinger. So she came to the set the first day, the famous crossover where she's, she has a black hood around her head and she's white, red lips. Fantastic. She meets Russell Crowe for the first time. Anyway, we have another scene in which we have a dialogue in the, in Kim Basinger house between Russell Crowe and Kim Basinger. And Kim Basinger is beautiful to, to text to me. I don't know, lights everywhere to light her. She was also a little over with her the race. She was not a young girl anymore. So I had lights everywhere around the key light, the film light below the lens, the Linky dinky, this and that. And I shoot her side with all this camera circle by lights. Now we come around on, on, on Russell Crowe, and of course, all those lights, which are cosmetic lights, are gone. And now you only see a camera. Russell sees one camera with a little tiny data light on top of the lens. He said, Dante, who am I, an idiot? Why are you treating me like this? That all those lights for King Basinger's, and now he's using nothing for me. So, Russell, come on. <laughs> that's funny well, yeah. you don't need all those lights well Dante Mr. Spinotti thank you so much for being on yeah, you can call me Dante Mr. Spinotti is kind of tough <laughs> anyway, thank you guys it was a, a pleasure doing this